The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be with everyone and really in deep now in our year-end retreat. And whether it feels that way to you right now or not, we have all of us some momentum building from having been practicing these days. And we're more sensitive naturally, appropriately. And so everything that arises in our experience seems bigger. (laughs) You know, so if we get upset, it might feel bigger. If we get tranquil, it might seem bigger, the tranquility. I remember... uh, forget exactly what the words were on this bumper sticker, but it was popular for a while. I haven't seen it lately. Um, maybe it was during the Iraq war. I forget when it was popular, but it was something like, if you're not paying, uh, if you're not freaking out, you're not paying attention or something like that. Maybe some of you remember it. And, you know, as practitioners, we could say, if you're not If we're not freaking out, maybe our practice is really developing. (laughs) And it doesn't, not freaking out doesn't mean we're not feeling or not seeing or not paying attention or not connected. It might mean something else. I don't know if people have heard about Ashoka. He was, uh, for a long time here in the West, um, like when the British colonial powers were hearing about him, this mythical figure, Ashoka. They just thought it was that, some myth, something made up, until, I don't know, late 1800s and some archaeology work in India. They found these pillars that were erected during the, uh, when Ashoka was the king of much of India, northern India especially. It was... Uh, about 300 years after the time of the Buddha, so, you know, maybe 200 BCE, something like that. forget exactly. And uh, that he was sort of a typical monarch in the sense of using his armies to conquer other lands and centralize his power and wealth and oppress and dominate and same old, same old. And then after one particular bloody battle that his troops won, um, he was there and he saw a Buddhist monk walking through the, through the carnage and uh, the Buddhist monk seemed serene and that was sort of confusing to him because it was a, you know, it was a terrible mess all the the results of the battle. So he tracked down the monk and he he asked them, like, what are you doing? (laughs) What's going on? What have you been doing with your mind? And he learned from him and uh, became a student of Buddhism, the Buddhist teachings, and a real powerful advocate for the practice and did all kinds of things that uh, even today would stand out. They had hospitals for the animals and just a lot of 
work around justice, which was not common at that time. And these pillars were set up throughout the kingdom that had some of the really sweet, wise teachings of the Buddha. Just a lot of the teachings on morality, you know, not on non-harming. Just as reminders to the, the people. And it was his daughter, I believe, that then uh, was part of Buddhism going to Sri Lanka, which is really, for our early Buddhist tradition, really important because through all the twists and turns of history, being an island culture, the teachings were somewhat protected there. And, uh, you know, places like Burma and Thailand, <clears throat> they'd sort of lose the thread and they'd send people back to Sri Lanka to get the kind of clearer teachings, practices, and bring them back. So I want to talk generally about wholesome qualities tonight, but especially equanimity. And uh, maybe some of you know because you're interested, but this winter the Buddhist studies class that I'll be teaching on Monday nights will be on the seven factors of awakening. It's really powerful and beautiful and essential qualities that we can learn to recognize and develop. The quality of mindfulness, first and foremost. Never can have too much of that stability of present moment awareness and uh, capacity to be interested in the way it is. That's the second factor. And the energy, like when there is that present moment awareness and it's interested in the underlying nature of things, including how it is that my heart gets bound up and how it is that this tension, this stress is released, then a lot of energy comes forward because wisdom senses that this is a onward leading process like being present, being interested in the underlying nature, this dhamma vichara, the investigation of the way it is or interest in the way it is. So then the third is energy and energy, that persistence with the interest opens the heart to joy because the heart starts to sense Some of the underlying truth just sort of creeps through, which is it's all happening on its own. The sense of me being burdened by life, the world on my shoulders, the burden of having to become a wise, enlightened human being even, you know, or drag my body around, you know, feed the body, then poop, and then feed the body, and then poop, and go to bed and get up, and go to bed and get up, and go to work and spend the money, and go to work and spend the money. So the joy that we experience in life, even if we don't understand it, but the more we contemplate joy, rapture, it's really this intuition and more direct sensing of everything happening on its own, including our neurotic activities. Oh yeah, that's just nature, stuff happening. Our wise activities, you know, wise thoughts, wise 
ideas. Yeah, that's just nature. So we have mindfulness, we have energy, I mean, investigation or interest, we have energy, we have joy. Those last three are the energizing factors, investigation, energy, and joy. And now there's three more to make seven, and we call those the tranquilizing factors. So first there's the tranquility of the mind, and then concentration or samadhi, this unification, stabilization of the heart. And then there's equanimity, which is the last of the seven factors. And it's a really beautiful list and interesting, you know, just a little bit about the culture at the time and the early Sangha, the monastics, the monks and nuns, that when one of them would get sick, you know, or be dying, an older monk or nun, um, they would ask one of their, you know, brother, sister, nuns, monks, to come chant the teachings on the seven factors. It was sort of like a healing balm for whatever might ail someone, just to know that there are these qualities of the heart and mind that can be brought to mind, and especially if we're really hurting, overwhelmed by pain, let's say, to have somebody remind us of the possibility of being present, of being actually interested in not a story, I'm under a lot of pain and I hate it, but the underlying nature that's here and now, to feel the energy and the joy and the sense the tranquility and the unification. And the real fruit is that balance. And the balance of equanimity is really, in our early Buddhist tradition, it's really considered to be the flavor or taste of awakening. You might remember the Buddha had that line, um, you know, that in this practice, in this training, it has one taste. You know, the taste of freedom. And the, the freedom is really this taste, this quality of balance. It's not, I mean, we use, maybe people use sometimes that word transcend, like we transcend the difficulties of our life or the meanness of the world. But that's a, that word's a little tricky and I find not that useful because for me and maybe for some of you, it just sort of evokes that sense of get me the heck out of here. Uh, it's too much. I don't want to be a human being. I don't want to have a body. I don't want to have to manage relationships. And I definitely don't want duties and responsibilities. And I don't want to have to unpack all my conditioned habits and biases. I don't want to have to be honest about all that stuff. i just rather it all be done. And the Buddha called that craving, you know, there's the craving to kind of want to, thinking life is great and wanting to just expand and have more, or more life, more of this, more of that. But there's also the craving to just want to be done with it all. And that can look like equanimity, that indifference, that nihilism, that get me the heck out of here, I don't care anymore. But that's not equanimity, that's aversion. It's not balance. Balance is that that real sense that we can 
we have experience. And maybe initially we experience it when the conditions in our life at that time are really nice. And that's fine that that our initial learning about the quality of equanimity comes when we're having a nice spell and people are treating us nicely and we're feeling pretty healthy and the weather's nice and we're not experiencing financial stress and we're not being mistreated by anybody. And we can feel, oh, like it's easy to experience contentment. It's easier to be nice and friendly and kind when things are going well. I mean, but that's okay because we get, we can learn what, uh, the, what's possible for the mind. Like, oh, this balance. And then if we're wise and we continue to investigate the balance that we're experiencing because the conditions in our life are really nice, then a natural result of just being interested would be, I'd really like this balance even when the conditions aren't so nice. Because there's a kind of nimbleness and creativity, and because the mind is balanced, it's not fixed. You know, balanced isn't a static thing. Even though some of the similes can make it sound that way, you know, I think in the tradition they have, you know, they use sort of the, what you might imagine is would come to mind about equanimity like being a, a big tree unmoved in the wind, I think is one simile that's used. Another one is like a, a big boulder, you know, unmoved by what comes and goes, by the weather, for example. So we can have this idea that equanimity is like I have a fixed view, I have a fixed stance, and I'm really dug in. It's like, uh, I think some of the Qigong masters have a, some technique, I don't know it, you know, where they can connect with the earth. I'm not sure exactly what they do. And uh, a much bigger person can't move that person, you know, even sometimes they'll have three people trying to move the master, but because he has this very strong idea and very strong mind, you know, immovability. And so it manifests, it has some power to it. But that's not equanimity. Equanimity has this, uh, as I mentioned in the guided meditation, you know, when the mind is able to include more and more and more and more, we're basically uncovering the wisdom of equanimity, the experience of balance, by being more and more open. Because it is that wisdom of balance that can actually say yes to everything. So when we have a good sit, you know, the classic good sit, we get some tranquility and we feel good. Then because we're feeling good, it's like we have some balance. Like uh, some of you know the 16 steps for mindfulness of breathing. And the second set of four instructions 
the Buddha asks us to pay attention to joy and ease. So we're really keeping joy and then that more resonant ease of the heart, contentment, that deeper, more resonant happiness. We're keeping it in mind, keep it in mind. And then what do we do with it? We use that good feeling we've been keeping in mind, that kind of born out of seclusion and uh, some unification of the mind. We use that good feeling, because it is a good feeling, to have a lot of balance, a lot of equanimity around thought and any other mental activity, whatever the mind is thinking, perceiving, feeling. Because I've been tuning in to ease and contentment and inner happiness, that I'm not dependent on my thinking to get to create something interesting or juicy or to get rid of something or to plan something. So I have this capacity just in that particular training to be aware of the mental activity, thoughts and any other kind of mental activity with a lot of dispassion, a lot of space, a lot of balance. It's just thoughts. And that settles things down. And then just using that same map, that same set of teachings, later with that fourth set of four, four instructions, so that would be, I guess, 13, 14, 15, and 16, the Buddha is, we're training in a way that's evoking a deeper kind of equanimity. So the first kind of equanimity we have when conditions are nice, and we pay attention to how nice conditions are, whether it's uh, nice in the sense of an inner meditative experience or nice, like I described earlier, people like us and the circumstances around us are pleasant. And with the, that last set of four instructions, then, like I think a question came up earlier today about the three characteristics that Chile answered you know, and we're seeing the ephemeral changing nature and the impersonal nature, the unsatisfactory nature of our experience. And there's this dispassion with all of existence. So we're still alive, eyes still see, ears still hear, skin still sensitive to touches, nose sensitive to smells, tongue to taste. As Shelley mentioned earlier in the retreat, Thinking happens because that's what the mind does and thinking is being known. So all those ordinary exposures to thought, to sound, to smell, to touch, etc. still happening. But now it's happening in the context of a mind that understands in a deeper and a deeper way that sense experience, including our thoughts about sense experience, that sense experience isn't worthy of grasping. I can't, there isn't anybody that can actually feed on sense experience. I don't know, this is a real maturing in our practice when we get what we want, you know, whatever it is we wanted, 
we wanted to go to bed, finally we get to go to bed, or we wanted to eat, we finally get to eat, or we wanted to buy something and we get it. But it's important to bring that balance because you'll see that in a weird way it's nice that we have, there is some experience that we call gratification, having what we wanted. But it's also strangely empty, that gratification. So gratification is real when we get what we want. So just, you have to look for this. You finally on the vacation, you've been planning for a long time. So whatever it is, big or small, the final bell rings at nine o'clock and you get to go home. And you just sit there and you go, oh, another day, that's good, I'm ready, I'm so ready. And then, but just see that whatever that experience of gratification is, it doesn't belong to anybody. There is nobody that can own it and put it in a bank and become somebody who has that experience or that object or whatever it is. Although that's what we imagine, like in the desiring and the craving, we think, if I get what I want, get rid of what I don't want, then somebody will have something substantial. Now, I know this, uh, what I just said, is sort of fraught with shadows, but that's okay, because we have to do this work, this practice for ourselves. Like, what's actually functional, useful for us? And what is this balance and this freedom that the Buddha's teachings and practices point to? Is it real? Or is it just some idealistic stuff that's been passed down? You know how it is in the West. Westerners were so enchanted by cultures that are different than us, and this is just another version of that, you know, a bunch of Westerners getting interested in something from the East, and eventually we'll grow up and, you know, do what other people do, or something like that. So it's really important, because that flavor of freedom, equanimity, peace, the Buddha says it's there all along, even when we're just a fumbling beginner. We want to attune to that particular flavor of freedom that's related to this taste of equanimity, the flavor of equanimity, balance. Somehow the heart, still in the push and pull of life, still an emotional being, emotions arising and passing dependent on the different stimuli that we're exposed to, but yet there's something that remains balanced, peaceful, unmoved, unconditioned. And you know, in this practice, what we're not interested in, we tend not to realize or see or experience. So part of you know, Dharma talks and doing our best to tune into the Buddhist teachings or the teachings of really wise people is that we use, you know, initially it's just information, just concepts, ideas. 
but we use those, we learn them, we memorize them so we can hold them and regurgitate them while we're, we've got the wherewithal to be present. So we're using this new information to see what we're not clearly seeing yet in our own experience. So now we're getting the information on upekka, equanimity, this radiant, stable, unflappable balance. And so that we want to be intrigued, like, what might that, those words, those concepts be pointing to my actual experience? Do I ever have that experience, even in a feeble or faint way, that experience of balance? One teacher refers to it as a quiet confidence. But it doesn't mean, you know, on this kind of ordinary functional level that we're somehow not vulnerable or not being touched or moved. I did a number of Zen retreats and um, a long time ago in the 90s and uh, Sashins are called. And many of them were with uh, Reb Anderson, who's a a pretty well-known Zen teacher, um, used to be the abbot of the the uh, San Francisco Zen Center and still teaches, as, as far as I know, at Green Gulch, the place they own north of San Francisco in Marin County. And uh, he, he had this great little teaching where he would say, uh, an ordinary person is vulnerable some of the time and somebody who's practiced really well, they're vulnerable all the time. Because they don't forget it. And this, this says something about equanimity that I think is really important. And it's, it's this point of, uh, what I was saying earlier about being intimate, like when we choose to cultivate the capacity to be sensitive, to be awake, to be aware, to be open, we're gonna feel and see and be exposed to a lot more, right? But that the stability of equanimity, the the kind of radiant presence of equanimity, it arises because, because the awareness is more subtle, more broad, more deep, there's less and less that can surprise the mind. So a mind that's radically open, right? We've already uh, acknowledged and intimate with and keeping close all of our fears, all our neurotic tendencies. And so it's, it's a real uh, immunity from acting out in unskillful ways because we're less surprised by what shows up in the moment because we're choosing to stay connected. So, you know, over years of practice, you know, if defensiveness is one of your personality attributes, well, when the defensiveness gets triggered, oh yeah, I'm really defensive. We even see it coming or fear, or 
neediness or whatever the particular qualities of your personality that you know you keep them close it's like that old saying you know you keep your enemies close so you know what they're up to but it's not so much you know we don't have to demonize these unhelpful qualities they're just nature but it really helps to to be aware to be connected to be grounded in the way it is. Oh, this is a conditioned mind. I mean, for goodness sake, we're animals. (laughs) And a lot of our genetic conditioning is the same as reptiles. You know, we're not just the noble social mammals. You know, we've got all kinds of strands of conditioning and then the same in our culture, which is just an expression of all of that, you know, different aspects of animal conditioning the meanness and the altruism and everything in between. And I, for me, that's, that's really empowering that, uh, you know, I think for me, my entry into the Dharma right after college was having some understanding of dukkha uh, that Shelley talked about last night and just some intuition and for sure some real sensitivity and uh, and also about how stressful it was just uh, and this is not wasn't extraordinary for me I just maybe was uh, more aware of it but just the endless stress of fitting in and needing to become somebody in the world, needing to be somebody in the world. And even, not even for me, it wasn't even so much to live up to other people's expectations. Like I didn't have any of that from my parents. They, didn't, they, they could, they really let the kids do what they want. They didn't push us to go to school or any of that kind of stuff. I didn't have any of that. But just somehow it got internalized, you know, just the need to be somebody. And yet nothing made sense to be. It all just seemed stressful. Just a setup. You do this, and then what do you get? (laughs) Nothing that I really want. Nothing that really delivers in the long run. And it just felt like such a setup. And so one of the things that's so trustworthy for me and I think really supports this deeper kind of equanimity is this maturing, deepening, widening understanding of dukkha. Like there's really no escape. Dukkha is, and there's no escape, but there is an end to it. But it's not through escaping it. But it's really through that transformation of understanding so we could even track our own deepening experience of equanimity in our lives, the little places where we really have had a, a resonant um, experience of equanimity. I think we could correlate that with a, a willingness to include more and more the truth of suffering and the unsatisfactory, like, Shelley mentioned last night, the axle, the wheel out of true. It's just, 
There's something about existence that doesn't work, try as we might. And, and you know, a lot of the more trustworthy moments, the kind of love and connection we have with other people, when we think about when those moments happen, it's often when, you know, as a community or a couple people, that's been a really difficult time, and there was something really sobering and purifying about the difficulty. So they kind of meet as two broken human beings, but the meeting is so much more authentic than most of the times when we're meeting another human being. You know, you often hear this like, uh, I mean, it's not always this way, of course, but you know, when somebody dies and the people who are really close to the person who died, you know, it can kind of shake things up and the sort of conversations people can have around those times or like uh, we were, my family was together on uh, Christmas Eve, not everyone, but I have uh, six siblings and uh, maybe four of us were there and uh, partners as well. And we were talking about death and, and including my mom's passing and, and she might, she had like Alzheimer's for 14, 12 years, a long, long time. And for the last number of years, she was really couldn't do anything. Um, and then at some point she had a stroke, we think, because we were feeding her for a couple of years, but she didn't, she seemed unresponsive to water or to food. So, Luckily, we had the wherewithal to just not force things. And so it was just, that's probably what killed her, is just the, you know, lack of water, lack of food. And so we had this long vigil. We were all there. And it was such a beautiful time. I mean, sad and but poignant and, uh, yeah, just so real, the family together like that. Those, I don't know, it was almost two weeks. We were all there. And, uh, yeah, it's just interesting. That's an example like, like there was a lot of space and peace, you know, and of course my mom being, having had Alzheimer's and all of that, it, it felt like a relief, of course. Um, but anyway, just that, that kind of balance and, uh, not trying to get anything not trying to hold on, letting nature take its course. You know, and, and we were still our neurotic selves, but there was just a lot of space for, you know, each of us acting out in the ways that we act out. I mean, I remember, you know, just being domineering at times or other siblings doing their dance at times. And yeah, just just kind of... Uh, how we had a lot of space for that. So that's another way to, because it's important just in terms of faith and confidence for you to identify the experience of equanimity actually in your own life, in your own experience, so that you will have definitive confidence this mind, this heart, is capable of that radical balance, at least in moments, unflappable, not dependent on conditions. Because you're going to remember times when the conditions weren't ideal, but what was still there was this 
kind of open, radiant, stable, balanced presence. Cool in the sense that no need to make something out of it. It would only be a disturbance of the balance. And, you know, another way this comes alive in the Buddhist teachings is there's the, you know, there's this whole description of flavors of happiness and there's the kind of more ecstatic, energetic kinds of joy and rapture and then there's the more heart-melting, resonant, content, just uh, the epitome of pleasantness that we can experience, that kind of happiness, just a very sweet feeling, resonant, sweet feeling in the heart. But that's not the deepest kind of happiness. This cooler, more peaceful balance is, according to the Buddha, according to my experience in practice, this is the most um, trustworthy happiness. But it's in a way, it's an acquired taste. I remember in one of Ajahn Sumedho's booklets, he says something like, you know, most practitioners like the idea of peace, but find the actual experience of peace, I don't know if he says something like boring or, you know, not okay. And it's true, we have to, when we have that balance, that equanimity, that stillness, the silence, the empty, open space of the present moment. We actually have to, in just a simple, pragmatic way, is this safe? It's almost like we ask you, do you like this? (laughs) Is this trustworthy? What happens when I really relax here, really abide, really kind of almost merge into or let let this be without remainder, without any ifs or buts. Really take it as a refuge, peace. Because it's, you know, this balance is really more about the absence of reactivity. The absence of there being a somebody who has to manage something. That's why it's peaceful. That's why it's cool. It doesn't have the heat of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it has, it's cool of a lot of that self-centered activity, or maybe in moments, all of that self-centered activity. And I'll just end with one more little simile that I've liked from one of Ajahn Tanisaro's uh, teachers, Ajahn Suwat, he was one of the great elders in the Thai forest tradition. There was this more recent, really potent movement, reformation really, in Thai Buddhism. started right around 1900 with, uh, I think, Ajahn Sao and Ajahn Mun. Um, and then uh, they trained several others that then trained a bunch of Westerners. So we're our early Buddhism tradition here is really influenced quite a bit by the Thai forest tradition. And um, 
Yeah, he has this uh, simile, Ajahn Suat has a simile of mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them. So life is the way that it is. There's very, you know, real suffering and injustice and just the truth of aging and sickness and death and you know, joy and sorrows, the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. Right, so that's that's life, but that stuff is heavy only when we personalize and feel like we gotta carry the praise, own the blame. So equanimity is a way of actually, it's a functional way of being a human being, and being a mom, being a dad, being a partner, a lover, an activist, whatever you know we might do with our life. Then one of the questions that comes up a lot in these sort of settings is, you know, don't we need anger to um, kind of motivate ourselves to do something good in the world? And I think the what the person probably often means is Aren't there moments that require a fierce response in life? That the, a fierce or an intense response would be the skillful, appropriate response? And that seems an obvious yes. But I wouldn't call that anger or greed. I would call it a fierce or an intense movement of love. And in any case, whatever we call it, it's just nature. It doesn't have, you know, somebody running into the street to grab a kid before a car hits the kid or whatever, you know, marching on the streets to bring about some positive change. So whatever intense thing a person might feel called to do, that can be understood, that can be experienced as a movement of nature from this place of profound balance. Oh, look what the body and mind is doing now. I felt that way when I hooked up with my partner, I mean, connected with Wynn, and I was leaving New York City where I'd been living at a yoga and meditation in an ashram there in the city. And uh, I just, it was just like... Uh, like I, I finally surrendered to what needed to happen. And I asked Wynn, my spouse, to leave with me. And uh, I didn't have any plan or... We weren't social in that way. I mean, we knew each other pretty well because we'd been living in this spiritual community for a while, a couple years together. But but it was just the, kind of that cool feeling. You wouldn't normally consider it very romantic. But it, it was really trustworthy. It was like, yeah, now I'm doing this. And I, yeah, I don't know where this is going, but I'm clear this is happening. And I'm clear I don't know what should happen, you know. And part of that equanimity is losing, being willing to lose the idea that you know or that you should know. I mean, we have information, we have how the past, you know, has what the past has taught us. and 
But we really don't know if we should go left or right or do this or do that or still we have to choose. So that's the other place to look, be interested in equanimity is just the different ways you can relate to choices, both the ways you have in the past, the way you're doing currently. You know, at nine o'clock the bell will ring, and then you just see, like, do I need to bring myself home, or will going home happen? <laughs> and you can just watch. You just sit there, and at some point you'll notice that you're standing up, you know, and walking out. So I'll leave it here. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just take a moment or two to let go of the words. Just a time to take a breath. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.